drone attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria at least 23 times in the past two weeks. U.S. intelligence saying the first deadly attack on U.S. forces was conducted by a one-way attack drone made in Iran. They say they believe that the attacks have been Iranian-backed, they've involved rocket attacks and also drone attacks on U.S. positions. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week... The rocket's red glare. U.S. and coalition troops have been attacked at least 40 times in Iraq and Syria since early October. Initially, we were told there were only a handful of injuries. Now we hear there are scores. Why did they lie? As the U.S. fumbles the bag on its response to the Gaza crisis, regional actors are scenting blood in the water. This week, in a special edition, we're going to be talking about America's power vacuum in the Gulf. The war is expanding horizontally and vertically. Can America still save its allies? And can it even save itself? Malcolm Cheyune has been wondering aloud. In a three-part essay series for The New Statesman, he has been digging into where this all leads. This week, he joins us once again to wargame the war games. We'll be talking about the base attacks that kicked it off, about the strange case of a declaration of war that signalled America no longer even wants to acknowledge how deep the sinkhole goes, and about the region's overall future as its hegemon wilts. But first, all your base are belong to us. Welcome everybody to this special episode of Multipolarity. As you will have heard in the introduction, since October the 17th, there have been over 40 attacks by missiles and drones on U.S. bases and personnel in Iraq and Syria. So to discuss this and the broader implications of the war between Israel and Gaza and Hamas, we're joined tonight by friend of the podcaster and essayist Malcolm Cheyune. Malcolm writes erudite and beautifully formed prose for outlets such as Compact and The New Statesman and Unheard by day. And by night, his alter ego, Tinkzorg, goes onto X or Twitter and posts strident and edgy hot takes. So Malcolm, welcome. And perhaps we can start from the beginning. Let's discuss these attacks on US bases in Iraq and Syria. Who is attacking US personnel and US bases in the region? How are they attacking them? By what means? And why? Let's start from the top. Yeah, I think it's useful here. And thanks for that kind introduction, by the way. I think it's useful to just keep in mind here the immediate background. Like You've had attacks on US bases on and off before, because the US bases in Syria are quite literally illegal. The US military was never invited in. They're holding on to some oil and wheat fields in parts of Syria, even though the lawful president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, has uh, told them, your, your help is no longer needed. The same has happened in Iraq. The Iraqi parliament voted to uh, expel the Americans in 2020. This is a sovereign country. You're not supposed to be here. Go home. And the Americans said, you and what army? They declined to leave Iraq, essentially. 
So you've had low-level attacks sporadically from people who often are just Iraqi patriots. Like, why are you Americans in my country? We don't have Iraqi bases in Texas. But these were low-level, very sporadic, could usually be ignored. With the, with the Hamas attack on October 7th, though, the region was set ablaze. And America quickly sent two aircraft carriers to the region, as well as they flew in air defense, like A-10 squadrons and more aircraft. Not a lot of ground troops, though, but they sent a lot of stuff to the Middle East and they communicated clearly, we're sending all of this stuff to make sure that the war between Israel and Hamas stays a war between Israel and Hamas. Nobody else get involved. And then the war between Israel and Hamas, uh, how do I put this? It's been quite controversial in the Muslim world, to say the least. And it turned out that a week after the Americans sent these carriers and made all these pronouncements that peace is guaranteed by American strength, none none of the deterrence had worked. And so you have this so-called axis of resistance, the that mainly comprise Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and the Palestinians. And essentially, the Iraqi and Syrian part of the axis have stepped up their attacks on U.S. bases massively. And these attacks are actually quite serious because the problem with the region is that if you ask the average American about the Middle East, their sort of cultural impressions, shall we say, are probably stuck in the early 2000s. They remember the jokes about Ahmed the dead terrorist. They probably remember like Team America, Freedom Force or whatever, like that show was by the South Park guys. Like they see a bunch of sandal-wearing, turban-sporting people with rusty AK-47s. But if you look at the attacks on U.S. bases, it's not sandal wearers riding their camels shooting their AK-47s. Like the military technology in the region, as well as economic development, has advanced massively, uh, which is a point with the Multipolarity podcast to trace out these big economic, social, military developments that shift the balance of power between East and the West. But in this case... The militias in Iraq and Syria now have access to modern cruise missiles, loitering munitions, so essentially drones. And some of this stuff is more advanced than what the US has. And if it's not more advanced, it's a heck of a lot cheaper uh, and, and more numerous. These bases are now being attacked by modernized sort of grad Katusha rockets suicide drones of Iranian make, and even cruise missiles with warheads weighing essentially upwards of a thousand pounds. So if you think about the destruction that's being wrought on Gaza, like a lot of the munitions uh, that the um, uh, militias in Iraq have access to are capable of doing exactly what is happening to neighborhoods in Gaza to American military bases. And this story is 
quite obviously being suppressed. Yeah, I think the first point to highlight is what you said. Most people today think in terms of the Iraq war, effectively, the second Iraq war, you might say. And that was 20 years ago. So there's a lot more distance between us and when the Iraq war started than there was in the first Iraq war and the second Iraq war. There was only about 12 years there or whatever. And we're 20 years out now. And we haven't really updated our priors and the regions changed a lot. The first thing that, that stands out is, is how spread out these attacks are. I've seen a map there where you see the entire, not the entire Middle East, runs on the left from Gaza over to the right, goes through Syria, Syria, Israel, and then onto Iraq. And then on Iraq's border, there's Iran. And these things are spread out absolutely everywhere. There seems to be a pretty concerted effort to attack these bases so so I wouldn't say it's it's organized or centralized or anything. I don't think it is, but it's it's definitely concerted. Uh, I suppose the second point to make would be the um the reporting or lack thereof uh, on the casualties. So the latest um news story that I got up here from the hill says that Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh said this was last Thursday that there's been forty six attacks since October seventeenth. These include 24 attacks in Iraq and 22 in Syria. And the press secretary said that a total of 56 troops have been injured in the attacks, but most are minor injuries, and every service member has since returned to duty. Now, if you've got 46 attacks and 56 minor injuries, I'm not really sure if, if that's credible. Maybe it is if these things are like are like bottle rockets or something, but it seems that, it seems that they're not. My guess... I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. My guess would be that the Americans probably are trying to play down uh, the amount of the amount of potential damage that's been done here. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening, which is another very sort of curious facet to all of this that it's not being commented on. You mentioned like Hamas bottle rockets. Hamas makes the rockets essentially underground inside tunnels with locally sourced materials. Their biggest or or most ubiquitous rocket, at least, the Qasem Four has about um, 10 kilograms of homemade explosives, which is significantly less energetic than the sort of military-grade explosives that are used in, so I say, the Tomahawk missile. But like the militias we're talking about here, like they're using actual military equipment. Some of it is from Iran, and some of it is from Russia. Some of it might even be from China. But it's like the real deal. This is actual military-grade weapons. And about the casualties, here's a very interesting thing about them. The US has been caught lying about these things repeatedly. And I'm not talking historically, even though that's certainly true. They lied about the casualties during the Iranian retribution attacks on US bases due to the murder of Qasem Soleimani. They said, oh, these were just Iranian bottle rockets or whatever. Nobody got hurt. Like, Americans would never be hurt by inferior grade Iranian weapons. And then it turned out that actually there were a lot of traumatic brain injuries resulting from that attack. But in this case, they've been caught lying explicitly in the sense that the first attacks during the first week, so say between... October the 10th and October the 17th. You had sporadic attacks, two attacks per day maybe, over Iraq and Syria. Um, And you had that for a couple of days. And CENTCOM's 
actually had like individual reports over every attack. The Al-Tanf base got attacked in Iraq. CENTCOM would publish a statement saying, we were attacked at Al-Tanf by two suicide drones. We shot down one, one malfunctioned and crashed. There were zero injuries. And they had to report one contractor who died from a heart attack while searching for shelter. But other than that, zero injuries, zero damage to any equipment. Like all of these drones and missiles, they were just useless against American defenses. Completely useless. And attack after attack, they published updates like that. And then a week later, they were forced to admit, sorry, we lied about all of this. There's actually plus casualties, like wounded. And some of them were apparently evacuated to like the military hospital close to Rammstein Air Force Base in Germany. Seriously injured people in need of immediate medevac to Germany. And there, there wasn't zero base equipment destruction. Like These things took out, among other things, a hangar with an airplane inside of it. CENTCOM was deliberately not just hiding, but straight up like point blank lying about taking casualties. Uh, even as dozens of, like the US was racking up dozens of casualties, they said, no casualties, go back to sleep. And when the US moved all this equipment to the Middle East, there were a lot of commentators saying, this is just the US looking for a causes belly to invade Iran or whatever. If a war is declared in the woods. Yeah, one thing that I find almost shocking about this, Malcolm, is that the al-Nujaba movement, uh, which is an Iraq Iraqi militia, as well as the Iraq uh, Hezbollah, has essentially declared war on the United States. They've both said that in no uncertain terms, they're now at war to either remove or kill all of the Americans currently stationed in Iraq, the American soldiers currently stationed in Iraq. And yet it seems, again, that the US response to this has been curiously, not limited, but just absent altogether. Yes, officially it has been. Unofficially, however, the U.S. has taken many actions that show it to be extremely concerned. This is the interesting thing about this. The lying about the casualties was strange in and of itself in the sense that if the U.S. was really going to war, you have all of these bloody shirts to wave around. Like, why not do it? Why pretend like the shirt isn't bloody? It's just oh my God, I spilled tomato juice on it. It's not blood at all. But what you're mentioning here is that like several of the bigger factions within the Iraqi like popular mobilization forces or the um, Islamic resistance of Iraq, like this umbrella term for all of the militants, as you said, they've openly declared war and they are constantly attacking U.S. bases. And when they attack, they publish a statement saying, we, the Karib Hezbollah, attacked this base with so and so many weapons, and we scored confirmed hits on the American dogs. So they keep putting this stuff out there. And when you go to a press conference with Kirby in the White House, or Lloyd Austin, 
you will never hear the word Iraq. I'm, I'm being completely serious here. They will never utter the word Iraq. They will talk about Iranian proxy forces and American self-defense strikes on warehouses in Syria. But if you pull up a map that um, Iraq and Syria, they're two different countries. And if they're if the problem here is Iranian-backed forces, like the Iranian-backed forces in Iraq don't have to go to Syria because Iraq shares a border with Iran and Iran does not share a border with Syria. So what's going on here? To answer that question, you have to realize that after um, the, uh, I think it was the Qadib Hezbollah said, if Antony Blinken lands in Baghdad, we will escalate our attacks further. Um, Blinken flew in as part of his latest Middle Eastern tour to Baghdad under the cover of darkness on, on a flight without a transponder. Uh, he donned a flak vest, like, and there are pictures of this, like Anthony Blinken and his friends in bulletproof vests at the airport in Baghdad. And they flew under great secrecy from the green zone to meet the Iraqi prime minister and then they started begging the Iraqi prime minister, please do something about like all of these attacks. Like, and this is quite curious. Like you have the, the most powerful country in the world, the indispensable nature, nation, like the superpower that is so incredibly powerful, begging the prime minister of Iraq to please do something about these militants. But nothing has been done. Like the attacks keep coming in and the Americans have never retaliated against any group inside of Iraq, even though the Iraqis are openly saying, we're the ones attacking you. We're here in Iraq and we're going to kick you out. Complete silence from the US. Yeah. So just to give some sense of what, what I can gather anyway, it's pretty, pretty confused situation, maybe partly on purpose, partly not. But one of the one of the groups that declared war on American troops were called Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujaba. Looking into their background a little bit, the leader seems to have come from the the Sadr, the, the Mahdi army that was under al-Sadr. I don't know if anybody followed the Iraq war closely, but they, they were a pretty serious force that went up against the, the Americans, the coalition forces there. I think they disbanded in uh, 2008. So obviously these are leftover movements or whatever from the Iraq war. Maybe there's more to it as well. I think Iran backed a lot of these groups. It's very hard to get a sense of how large they are. The Harakat Hezbollah al-Nijaba, the Wikipedia is claiming in 2017, it's eight to 10,000 people. There's just tons of them. <laughs> it's not really even clear who exists anymore, who doesn't. The real sense you get is really just, you can create like a, a WhatsApp group, <laughs> just create one of these things. It's re- it looks just really angry men in Iraq who don't really like what happened after 2003 and access ready access to weapons. The fact, as you say, the attacks seem to be carried out with drones and so on. So that shows a pretty, pretty obvious kind of Iranian presence since they're the kind of drone, drone king in the region. It is very surprising. I'd say, as you emphasize, the, the Americans are trying to play this down. 
Whereas if they really wanted to go all in and go to war with Iran, obviously they wouldn't be playing it down. But I don't think even the kind of war hawks on Iran are playing this up at the moment in America, or at least I haven't seen it. So I think you're probably right that that they just really want this to go away. I guess it's good in a way, but it doesn't really feel like it will. One thing that it's that is important to add here is that if you formulate this in the sense of leftovers from 2004, five, and so on, the Mahdi army and so on. Sadr, Al-Sadr is still around, I think. He issued some statements very negative towards Americans when Blinken visited Baghdad recently, saying, floating the idea of reactivating the same patriotic army fighting the Americans in Mosul and so on, bringing the boys back together. But the actual popular mobilization forces, like this umbrella term for all the groups, these people, like the leaders, might remember the US invasion and might have been active like militarily back then. But the crucible that really formed most of these groups was the war against IS, like ISIS. These people got their military experience fighting in Iraq and Syria against ISIS. There's 350 men under arms in in the total sort of umbrella group of militants. For a point of comparison, that's around the same as the regular Iranian army. The US army at this point, once they get done sort of falsifying the numbers, we're talking about an army not bigger than 450,000 active personnel. And that includes all the lawyers, all the cooks, and all the people restocking the vending, vending machines. So US 450K, like the Iraqi PMF 350K. And the Americans have around like not much more than 10,000 boots on the ground in Iraq. I think it's actually significantly lower than that, like 8,000 or 7,000. So once you get a sense of the scale of, which is something that people don't really pay attention to most of the time, but like the Americans are so massively outnumbered in Iraq. And again, if this was just people like riding around on camels, swinging their scimitars around or their rusty AK-47s, maybe you could fight 8,000 against 300,000. But if these people have more advanced drones than the U.S. has, because the U.S. doesn't really have a very, how do I say it, contemporary drone weapons program, like the math just doesn't make sense. The U.S. can't win this fight. Here's another way of looking at this. As far as I've seen so far, Malcolm, all sides in... Uh, who are adjacent, shall we put it like that, adjacent to the Israeli-Gaza thing, whether that be the United States as Israel's not just main ally, but security guarantor, but also greatest ally and friend in the world, I would say. But also on the Middle Eastern side, on the Islamic side, the major powers, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, seem to be going out of their way not to avoid escalation. Really whether it be the word from the Saudi Arabian imam who told the average Iraqi uh, Saudi Arabian citizen to calm down and said, your views are burdensome. 
whether it be that or words from Hezbollah and the Lebanon or whether it be the Iranians themselves. Nobody, it seems, wants this to escalate. And they're all acting with, as far as I can see, a great deal of restraint. Now, isn't responding to provocations of this sort in the way that the Americans are responding to them, rather than being a sign of kind of military weakness where they're just outnumbered and outgunned in Iraq and they're desperate for it to go away before they have to before they have to be seen to be making a humiliating retreat isn't it the case that actually this is just a sign of perhaps more maturity in american foreign policy this is the the sort of mature response that you don't you don't retaliate against provocations of this sort you take the little pain for the bigger for the bigger result at the end of it isn't this the very sort of realism that perhaps you know, certainly multipolarity podcast, and maybe even you would like America to start demonstrating. Uh, to that, I would say, like, there are two big problems here. And the first one is the entire narrative about de escalation. I think this narrative has uh, caused immense damage to, like, the Western position here, like the, the American position and the Israeli position. Because if you think about the Secretary General of Hezbollah, Sayed Hassad Nasrallah. He had this speech on the 3rd of October, I think. And everyone listened to that in the West and said, oh, he's de-escalating. And what I found so curious about that, because I don't really, I'm not a native Arabic speaker. I'm not a expert on Hezbollah. This is the first speech by Nasrallah I listened to. So what I did was simply to ask people inside Lebanon, and then I listened to, there's a particular woman, I don't recall her name, who has written probably the best book on Hezbollah and interviewed like the military and civilian leadership. And like none of them agreed. And the problem here with this narrative of de-escalation that got spread around the West was it was just like, it was just wishful thinking, quite literally. The most egregious example of this was Nasrallah said in his speech, this, this attack by Hamas was planned, um, planned by Hamas itself. Like, we didn't help them plan this. They don't have to coordinate these things with us or with Iran. Everyone in the West said, wow, he's distancing himself. He's like cutting the Hamas loose. He's throwing them to the wolves. He's signaling that he's scared of American carriers. Everyone I talked to in Lebanon said, dude, like he's making a statement of fact. Like it's just objectively true that Hezbollah didn't plan this. Like he's not making some sort of implication here. He's just pointing out what actually happened. This is not him distancing himself. This is him making a statement of fact. And then what has happened after that speech where he signaled his intent to de-escalate is that Hezbollah has kept attacking and they've escalated and escalated. The same goes for every other actor within the axis of resistance. The Yemenis have challenged the U.S. directly by shooting down one of their drones. 
like a 42 million MQ-9 Reaper. The Americans did nothing about this. Like the Iraqi resistance have escalated constantly, like more and more attacks on U.S. convoys, not just on bases. And the Iranians are now saying openly, we get calls from the Americans all the time, sometimes free calls in a night, begging us to please, please put a stop to all of these attacks on Americans. And we're not going to do that. Like, why would we? Like, this is an American problem. It's not our problem. We're not the ones launching cruise missiles. Sorry. So I don't know why you're begging us to put a lid on this. So again, like nobody is actually de-escalating. And the other problem, yeah, just very quickly, the other problem here is that like the American position in Iraq and Syria, we're talking a couple of thousand troops in a hostile sea of Arabs with cruise missiles. Everyone who knows anything in the U.S. military establishment me knows that if there's a concerted attack, if these Arabs get really mad at us, we can't fight back. It's militarily, these bases are too isolated. I think the, um, the Nasrallah speech and the idea that it wasn't escalatory leads into a specific issue which is that we've seen since then, that probably isn't the case. I I think my sense from the reporting now on the day of recording over the weekend, basically over last weekend, I think people have digested that Hezbollah are gradually climbing up the escalation ladder in southern Lebanon. I think that's been widely appreciated. The US Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, this was also reported over the weekend, very quickly reported, so clearly they wanted to get out there publicly. He expressed concern to his Israeli counterpart, Yuav Galant, I hope I've pronounced that right. And basically, he was saying, we're very anxious about what's happening in southern Lebanon. We'd prefer if you didn't make a move there. My understanding is that is that most of the Israeli cabinet did want to make a move. And I think Bibi Netanyahu, who hasn't been a very conciliatory figure since this war started, I think he had to put a lid on it. So I think this kind of moves in the direction of what you were saying previously, Malcolm, that I think that I, I think we all agree that the that America and you might say the Western powers, barring maybe Israel, definitely want to put a lid on this. They'd like this all to just stop completely. They wanted a contained war. In Gaza, I'm, I'm, I'll be frank, I'm surprised that they're surprised that it's not contained. <laughs> I always, I saw no reason why it would be contained, so I don't know how they convinced themselves of that. But they're clearly not getting it. They're not going to get that. Like Lloyd Austin may be able to convince the Israelis not to escalate in northern Israel, southern Lebanon, but if Hezbollah want to escalate, they can do that. And from everything that we're seeing, it does feel like the region itself is escalating this. And and maybe we're making mistakes by saying, oh, there's going to be some big event that Nasrallah is going to come out and say something. I'm not really sure what he'd say, like we declare war or whatever. I think he's basically already said they're at war, that he's going to say something and then something crazy happens the next day where everyone knows exactly what's happening. It doesn't feel like that's what's happening. It feels like each front is just kind of getting dragged in. After the speech, we're told that the northern front in Israel or the southern front in Lebanon isn't going to be opened up. And then two weeks later, we're on the agreement it has, but nothing, no big event has happened. And so the whole thing just seems to be crawling. I don't know what you make of that. 
Yeah, it's actually quite interesting because the dynamic you describe here in like denying any one sort of turning point of ma- or massive event like uh, with Hollywood moose music and everything, that's clearly a strategy that's put into that's been put into practice by the axis of resistance. But it's also a product of this sort of auto, this sort of self directed psyoping in the West, we have such a big focus of, on narrative control that we spin all these narratives like out of the slightest sort of, we ba- barely need even an excuse to come up with a narrative that suits us. So like the Nasrallah thing where he said, sorry, Hamas and Hezbollah aren't the same organization. Everyone said, oh, they're distancing themselves. And then everyone in Lebanon just goes, duh, they're not the same organization. Like he's saying this uh, because it's true, not because he's a coward or whatever. But an underreported factor here is that American deterrence has completely collapsed. Every sort of actor in the axis of resistance that I am aware of, sans the groups in Iraq, which I think the Americans are very scared of, so they don't really threaten them as much. But the Iranians have come out and said that they received threats of military intervention by the US unless they stopped all sort of hostile actions and all the attacks on the US bases that they were responsible for, in theory. And the Iranians just shrugged and said, do your worst. Hassan Nasrallah said in his speech... We got information on the 8th of November, um, sorry, October, so literally the day after the Hamas attack, the Americans came to us through the consulate in Beirut and they said, if you attack Israel, we will bomb you back to the Stone Age. We will bomb Beirut. And I actually heard this from Lebanese journalists who had sources inside Hezbollah a week before the speech, like that this threat had been passed around. The Yemenis have come out and said the same thing. Like on the day after a mass attack, the Americans came to us and said, if you don't sit very still and don't rock the boat, we will bomb you back to the Stone Age. None of these actors like cared. Hezbollah started attacking uh, Amer- like Israel and there have been no bombing. Beirut is still living Inside the uh, 21st century, they're not back to the Stone Age. And the Americans, who had two carriers in the area, have actually sent the carrier away down to the Gulf of Oman. All of these actors ignored American threats from day one. And now Hezbollah, this weekend, so on the 12th and 11th, they turned up their attacks massively depending on the reports. There were wide attacks across the entire border between Israel and Lebanon. And the Israelis suffered 10, maybe even 20 dead in one day, which is worse than any one day in the 2006 war between Lebanon and Israel. The the actual invasion of Lebanon wasn't as bad in terms of any one single day than a couple of days ago. And what happens afterwards? Lloyd Austin, the American Secretary of Defense, writes a letter to the Israeli defense minister saying, knock it off. 
please don't provoke Hezbollah anymore. The, the American bluff has been called by everyone in the region, and the Americans, for all their threats of bombing everyone, they're not doing it. And all of the signals coming in says that they really don't want to do it. They are very scared of escalation because they can't fight the entire Middle East at the same time. Um, People don't really realize how big of a difference Iraq today would be in terms of like how much stronger the Iraqis are today than they were in 2003 and how much weaker the US is. Add to that like Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and Iran at the same time, and there's just no way. Lloyd's red line. What does this say about broader US power? On the one hand, you you might argue that some of the players in the Middle East have found a formula for dealing with the US, and that's by using trained, shockingly well-armed, non-state militias to take to do the dirty work of attacking U.S. bases, personnel, and indeed interests within the region. But does it say something about the broader situation the U.S. is in? The this our part of the internet, Malcolm, Philip, yourself, and a lot of other people, and even more kind of mainstream people adjacent to that, like Elbridge Colby, have been and 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 Matt Stoller have been talking about the decline of the U.S. military-industrial complex the issues surrounding U.S. military recruitment, uh, some of the organizational issues that they've got at the moment, and how that has led to a slow and far less noticed than it should have been decline in U.S. military heft, essentially, in U.S. military muscle. Then you also had a situation where the U.S. really got, Washington really got extremely deeply involved in what was objectively a non-core interest conflict within Ukraine. If Genghis Khan rose from the grave and and rode all his horses into Kiev and demanded tribute, it would make no real difference to the US position within the globe. And certainly who rules a kind of a corner of, of southeastern Ukraine, or or whether Ukraine is a centralized or federalized political system, it's neither here nor there for the US. But the US got very deeply involved and sent, actually, again, people don't realize, but sent a shocking amount of their reserve weapons and munitions to Ukraine. Is what we're seeing in in the Middle East at the moment a, a fact that perhaps Middle Eastern states who are antagonistic to the US, like like Saudi Arabia, like perhaps Iraq, or or certainly certain factions within Iraq, is it that they've just found a way of doing it by using very well-trained, very well-armed non-state actors to do the dirty work? Or is this a broader sign of a combination of a kind of a slow-burn US military decline combined with the fact that they've just got themselves involved in something of a quagmire in Ukraine, when it was in fact a, a, a non-core strategic interest, uh, and thus now they're paying the price for yeah, that. I, I would say, like the quagmire in Ukraine hasn't lasted that long, and once Ukraine began, like all of the big problems with the U.S. military and economy were already in place. 
what I would say we're seeing, though, and this picture is not clear to many, but I think it will become in a couple of months. I think it will be much more easier to see for most people. But what we're seeing today, and, and this attack by Hamas, which was planned maybe like many years in advance, but like Hamas are not like the ultimate masterminds here of this crisis for the US. If you want to find like the, the actual architect of the crisis today, you will have to go back to Osama bin Laden and 9-11 actually. We have all of these fancy cathedrals in Europe where the people that started building the cathedral never expected to see it finally finished. Like the sort of plan of Al-Qaeda un under Osama bin Laden was a plan that took very long to, to really bear fruit. But Osama bin Laden specifically said that, first of all, he had a couple of grievances. Like he thought the United States, like its position with all of its bases and its control over like all of these Arab nations, he thought that was corrosive. It was not just geopolitically disfavorable for the Arab states, it corroded them spiritually, religiously. He looked at Saudi Arabia and he saw slaves of the Americans, essentially. And he also really hated Israel and felt a great bit of sympathy for the Palestinians. He wanted to kick the Americans out and he wanted to destroy the state of Israel. And his chosen method to do, like the way he imagined that would work, was by doing what he had done with American support to the Soviet Union. Draw the Americans into the region and then drown them economically. That's the word he used. Or bleed them out. That's the specific formulation. Bleed them to the point of bankruptcy. The Americans are at the point of bankruptcy right now. US Congress has stopped being able to make a budget because the budget deficits are so large and the political dysfunction is so extremely high that all they can do is pass this temporary band-aid, like 40 days, 60 days, like funding bills. And what today in the region also is that like the Muslims who were very divided and very weak in when Osama bin Laden planned 9-11, suddenly you have a military axis of of that can actually put up actual sort of um, effective resistance. And a lot of this was American, essentially, like American-owned goals in the sense that like the American military-industrial complex today is completely dysfunctional. Like a lot of Iranian technology, like um, loitering munitions, cheap drones, loitering surface-to-air missiles is one of the capabilities they've developed. Like a lot of this stuff, the US doesn't have because it can't really make it anymore. So 
what you're seeing today is the end result of a multi-decade process that really started with the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably worth then thinking through what could stop this. Right? I'm I'm of the opinion that this probably isn't going to stop. This is probably going to continue. I don't think it'll explode into some crazy big... I don't think it'll be like Ukraine even or anything like that, but it, it'll be very corrosive, as you say. And yeah, I agree. I don't think America is in a very good position to deal with this, and hence their response so far. But I suppose the question is, is there a way for this to stop? If you take people like Nasrallah at, at their word or at face value, they'd say if the Gaza war stops immediately, I don't know if he's actually said, then we pull back. But I think that's the insinuation. Now, before we ask, we'll put out there first, it's very unlikely that the Gaza war will stop. Uh, the, the Israelis are pretty much boxed in on that policy and the Americans have committed, for the Gaza war at least, to back them ad infinitum, whatever it takes, however you want to think about it. But I suppose conceivably you could come up with a situation where where they stop, they end up, they figure out a way of exerting pressure on the Israelis or the Israelis wake up to the fact that this is very threatening to the entire project that they have there. And the whole thing kind of simmers down. But I think this is a real core question. Again, my assumption would be that the Gaza war will continue and this will continue to escalate. But Malcolm, in your opinion, if they did say tomorrow, okay, we're done in Gaza, try and make some face saving, we've got rid of Hamas or something like that. Do you think it actually does tamper down? Or is this like, is this, it's lit a match already? I think it, conceivably could tamper down, though I think it's a 50-50 chance right now that the match is lit and it's there's no way back. The problem, though, is if you take the longer view, like the reason that Israel is very unlikely to tamp down on the Gaza war is because like they, they, they can't maintain internal legitimacy and internal stability if they just press the pause button right now and Hamas is still there, Hezbollah is still there, if you're living in a settlement right next to them, like you know the state can't protect you. You know the army can't protect you. And the same goes for like the people in Iraq. Like They don't want the US bases there. And the Americans were asked to leave and they said, we're so militarily mighty that you can't make us leave. If you press the pause button now, after the Americans have taken attack after attack and then reacted in a frankly cowardly and dishonest and dissembling manner to try to hide the fact that they were being attacked, even if you call for a ceasefire now, you know that these Americans, at an opportune time, they will be so weak, they're already so weak, that you can just kick them out and retake your own country from the foreign invaders. So... This is the big conundrum from for the US. It really didn't want to fight all of these wars. That's clear. And it's doing everything it can to av- avoid fighting right now. But if you have all of these bases, if you have this global position, because you are the world's biggest hyperpower, you can take on the wo- whole world at once and beat them all because the American military is top-notch. Once you once you reveal that your hand is empty, that you can send these carriers and nobody has to care. A carrier is just a paper tiger to borrow from the good old chairman. You can't really sustain that for very long. The blood is in the water and the sharks are circling. 
be afresh from a huge victory.